out your Bibles with me. And turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 12. The book of Genesis, chapter 12. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study. The book of Genesis, we've just begun a focus on the life of Abraham, who is for us a model of the life of faith. This morning we come to the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1, this is what we read. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It would be hard for me to overstate the importance of this passage of Scripture. In these three verses, we encounter for the first time in Scripture what is called the Abrahamic Covenant. If you are a Christian here this morning, you are now living in the fulfillment of this covenant. God has made these promises, and these promises are now finding their ultimate fulfillment in you. Our God, incomprehensible, whose ways are beyond searching out, has humbled Himself to speak to human beings, and more than that, to have a relationship with human beings. And the kind of relationship that God has with people in the Bible and in history is covenantal relationships. He is always God in these relationships. And therefore, He always dictates the terms of how He will relate to people. And when God comes and establishes the terms of a relationship between Him and people, He is what the Bible calls covenanting with them. In each and every covenant, God calls people to trust Him and to trust His promises. And if they do, He will bless them. He will care for them. He will lift them up. He will cherish them. Right now, in this very moment, every person in this room is in some sort of relationship with God. You are in some sort of covenant relationship with God, even if it's a broken covenant relationship. Did you know that? The Bible is a book that reveals to us the various covenants that God has made with man. It is no accident that your Bible is separated into Old Testament, Testament, Latin for covenant, and New Testament. Right? The Old Testament is called the Old Testament because its major focus is the Old Covenant. The covenant established between God and Abraham's physical seed at Mount Sinai. 
The New Testament is called the New Testament because its focus is the New Covenant. The covenant established between God and Abraham's spiritual seed at the cross. You cannot understand your Bible correctly unless you understand that every part of the Bible falls into the context of covenants. This is not of some small importance, something just for theologians and people who love doctrine. This is not just about ancient people who have died and are long gone. You, dear friend, are included in many of these covenants. They tell you how God has promised to relate to you and what your duty is to Him. These covenants reveal to you the blessings God has promised to you if you keep the term of the covenants. And they reveal the curses you will reap if you do not keep the terms of the covenant. It says something tragic about American Christianity that so few today can even tell you the covenants of the Bible. In past days of Christian history, parents would use catechisms and other means with their children, asking them about the covenants, helping their children to understand what these covenants were, because it was a given that you cannot have a biblical worldview without understanding the very framework that the Bible gives to human history, namely the framework of the covenants. And so sermons were preached, hymns were sung, poems were written, pamphlets were published, all on the subject of these covenants. But those days seem to have largely passed, and I think it shows how shallow and superficial the church in America has become, that today Christians who have been in church for decades still know so little about the covenants which are woven through the whole Bible. By my reckoning, there are eight major covenants that God establishes in the Scriptures. One is a covenant made between the Father and the Son before the foundations of the earth. But the other seven are covenants that God made with people. I know it's been a while since our study of Genesis 1-11, through so let me remind you briefly of the four covenants, we're only to chapter 12 of Genesis, but we've already seen four of the seven covenants that God made with man. Let me remind you what they are. Number one, the one that's not made with man, is the covenant of redemption. Everybody say covenant of redemption. This is the covenant that God the Father made with God the Son before the foundations of the world. This was the covenant in which Christ agreed to become a man, to live a perfectly righteous life, and to die for the sins of a people. In return, God promised that He would exalt the Lord Jesus as King of kings, as Lord of lords, giving Him a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, purchased by His blood, all forming one kingdom, bearing the image of the one who saved them, given to Jesus as a bride. I... I preached, I think I preached a sermon on this back when we did Genesis. Maybe I need to preach a whole sermon just on that covenant. We, we don't have time to look at it directly. It shows up in Zechariah 6.13, Luke 22.9, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, Titus 1, and many, many other places. 
Every single thing that has ever happened in human history, from the rise and fall of kingdoms to the itty-bitty things that happen in the woods with bugs that we don't know about, has all happened within the context of that grand covenant made between Father and Son before the foundations of the world. The second covenant we've seen is the covenant of works. Everybody say covenant of works. Nicely done. This is the covenant that God placed on all humanity in the garden. The duty placed upon man was to trust God's word and therefore to do as God said. The reward for keeping this covenant was eternal, fruitful, abundant life in paradise. But the punishment for not trusting God and disobeying Him was exile from the Garden of Eden. Physical death, and worst of all, spiritual death. Adam broke the covenant of works, and when he did, we all did. He was our federal head in the garden, and his sin was our sin. His fall was our fall. That's Romans 5. And today, the covenant of works is still in effect. People walk around spiritually dead and under the wrath of God because of the covenant of works that we broke in Adam. And just as Adam failed to keep the covenant of works, representing all of us, and plunged us all into condemnation, so Jesus came and kept the covenant of works perfectly doing all His Father commanded Him, representing His people and accomplishing for them the righteousness by which they are saved. Let me say that again. Just as Adam failed to keep the covenant of works, representing all humanity, and plunged all humanity into condemnation. So Jesus came and kept the covenant of works perfectly, completely, for His people, achieving the righteousness we could not achieve on our own, so that when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, His righteousness is given to us as a free gift. This is why... 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, Jesus is our righteousness. We do not stand justified in the sight of God because of our own righteousness. No, our best works are filthy rags stained with sin. No, we stand justified in the sight of God because we have believed on Jesus and His righteousness, an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of ourselves, is imputed to us, credited to our account. God promised that if man would trust and obey Him, He would grant them eternal, abundant life in paradise. Jesus accomplished that for us and now gives it to us through faith. Jesus was the second Adam. Okay, that's the covenant of works. Let's talk about the covenant of grace. Number three, the covenant of grace that we saw in Genesis 1-11. through This was God's promise. We see it first in Genesis 3-15. That though humanity has rebelled against Him, that though humanity in Adam is worthy of His judgment, He will be gracious and He will save some. He will change people's hearts and He will do so because of a Messiah who is coming to pay for their sins. 
This is the promise that God will pardon and purify a people. All these covenants go together. The covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, covenant of grace are all in effect this moment. And God is fulfilling His promise of giving to Jesus a bride. My question to you, are you one of those people? God is fulfilling His promise of bringing judgment upon wicked humanity, but bringing blessings to those who have the righteousness of Christ. Do you have the righteousness of Christ? Are you clothed in it? By faith in Jesus. Even now, God is graciously changing people's hearts. He will do so even on this Lord's day. He will change people's hearts and save souls, drawing them to Himself. Is that you? The fourth covenant's a little different. It's the Noahic covenant, the covenant with, with Noah. This was made not just with man, but with animals, right? With the earth. And you know this covenant. You know the sign of it, don't you? The rainbow. This is the promise that God will never again judge the earth by flooding it. It's a reminder to us of God's grace in sparing a remnant, Noah and his family. And it's a sober reminder of a day that is coming. A day of judgment. When this world will not be judged by a baptism with water as it was in the days of Noah, but it will be judged with a baptism in fire, says Second Peter 3. Where do you stand with God as we await that coming day? Well, we come now to the fifth covenant in the Bible that God makes, the Abrahamic covenant. In this covenant, we learn more about how God promises to bless His people, And particularly important in the Abrahamic covenant, we learn the one thing that is required of people in order for them to be blessed by God. Faith. That if we will have salvation, that if we will have an eternal land and being part of an eternal kingdom, we must have trust in the one who made us and the one who promises us. Here's Abram. His father is dead. His older brother is dead. His wife is barren. He's left his hometown of Ur. He's settled, we don't know for how long, in the city of Haran. He's now caring for his nephew Lot because Lot's father died. All his life, Abram has been a pagan steeped in the traditions and the customs of the Chaldeans. And we read in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. You may notice a footnote in your Bible. Uh, In the ESV, right after the word said, there's a little one. If you go to the bottom of the page, you see the the one, and it says, or had said. It's because there's a question about exactly the right way to translate this this verse. It It can be translated either way. It could be, now the Lord said to Abram, or it could be, now the Lord had said to Abram. In other words, it's unclear whether we're learning here that God spoke to Abram in Haran after his father died, or whether we're now being reminded that God spoke to Abram way back when he was in Ur. 
Whichever one we take, it doesn't really matter all that much because it seems most likely that God actually spoke to him in both places. There's evidence in other scriptures that God first called Abram to leave his father's house and to leave his kindred and to go to a a land that God would show him while he was still in Ur of the Chaldeans. And then, when they came to Haran and settled there and his father died, God called again. It does appear that several years passed and Abram did not really seem to obey God's call. Because when we come to Genesis 12, he is still with his father. He is still with his father's house long after he received the call in Ur. They've left Ur, but they did not leave Mesopotamia. God said, leave your country. We don't know how long Abram stayed in Haran, but it appears that for some length of time, despite the fact that God had called Abram to go to a land he would show him, he's still with his father's house. And the commentators are split. What do we make of this? Is this evidence of Abram's weak faith? God had told him to leave his father's house and finally God takes the life of Abram's father in order to drive Abram into obedience? That's the way some people understand this. Interesting though, the Bible itself never speaks negatively of Abram's response to God's call. And never speaks of him doing anything inappropriate or hesitating in obedience. And this has led others to say that perhaps Abram was being obedient. That God revealed to Abram what he was to do in stages. That he first revealed to him in Ur to come so far. And then when they came to Haran, he settled there. And then God came to him again and said, now go further. We, We don't know. We don't know all the details of how this worked out. And that's okay, isn't it? We don't need to know all the details. What we do know is that this call was given and that it was accompanied with great promises. Look at verses 2 and 3 in these great promises. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we have here precious promises made to Abram. From him will come a nation of people. As we see later, this nation of people will dwell in a land especially prepared for them. They will be blessed by God and they will be a blessing ultimately to the nations of the world. This is God's promise to Abram. And friends, these things were his if he would only trust the God who called him. And so it is with us. God is building the nation he promised to Abram. It is a holy nation, a nation identified clearly in 1 Peter 2.9 as the church. National Israel was the shadow, but the church is the reality, the ultimate fulfillment of what God promised to Abram. And God is preparing for His church an ultimate promised land, a new heavens and a new earth. He has promised to bless His people. He has promised to make His people a blessing. And these things are held out to us by a gracious God. They are held out to us who are undeserving sinners and they are held out to us for us to receive by faith. Not to earn, but simply to receive by faith. 
These things are held out to all the people of the world. Whosoever will come and trust God by resting in Christ can have these blessings. Folks, our God has a generous heart. He loves to bless. He is glorified as He blesses His people. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to have a very exciting time together as we look at these promises together and talk about how they find fulfillment in Christ and are given to us and what we have now and what is ahead for us as Christians. It's, it's good, good stuff. But our main focus for the rest of the time this morning is verse 1 and some of the elements of Abram's call. What can we say about this call for Abram to trust God's word and go where God would lead him? Friends, this is a picture of our call. This is a picture of the gospel call to all people. We are all called to leave our former lives and to trust God And go where He leads. This is what it means to be a Christian. Let me say three things about this call. Number one, it was a call to submission. It was a call to submission. Abram is here called to acknowledge God as God. And to acknowledge himself as God's subject. God has spoken and Abram is duty bound to obey Whatever Abram's plans had been in the past, whatever Abram's dreams had been, are now wiped off the plate. God has spoken. He must obey. In the beginning, it was a lack of submission that plummeted man into God's condemnation. We refused to submit to the commands of God, even when it was just one. Don't eat from that tree. Noah He submitted to God, even when the command to build a boat in the desert seemed strange. And because he submitted, it saved his life and the life of his family. Friends, here is the call God has given to us. We are to submit ourselves to him. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. This should not be hard. It shouldn't be. If we were reasonable people, this would not be hard. Who is wiser, us or God? Who loves us most, us or God? Oh, come on now. Do you doubt God's love for you? Who loves us most, us or God? Who knows what is best for us, us or God? It only makes sense then that we would submit ourselves to God. He knows what's best for me. He loves me. He's good. He's wise. Of course I'm going to do what He says. If my will conflicts with His will, my will should go, whoop, whatever you say. The Scriptures call us not to exalt our wills above God's. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Proverbs 14.12 Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Proverbs 3.5 Friends, are we living in joyful, humble, restful submission to God? It should be reasonable. It is reasonable. The problem is sin 
has made us unreasonable creatures. We don't think straight. Romans 8, 7 says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. In other words, people by nature have minds that are set on the things of this world, set on the pleasures of the flesh, set on self-indulgence and self-exaltation, and because of this people do not, indeed they cannot, submit to God's good commands. Idolatry, sexual immorality, hatred, dishonesty, these things exist because we think that through them we will feel better than if we followed God's ways. Because I won't get in as much trouble if I lie about what happened. It feels good to hold bitterness against that person. It is pleasurable to indulge in this lust. It is enjoyable to love all these created things and to live for these created things rather than for the Creator whom I've never even seen. And yet all these things are leading us to death. But we cannot and we will not turn from them. We will not and we cannot trust God and submit to His ways. We are so enslaved to our sin. And so how kind of God that He did establish a covenant of grace in which He, because of Jesus' death on the cross, reaches in through the gospel and changes people's hearts, giving them new desires, giving them new eyes to see and new ears to hear, making them able and willing to submit to God and His will. This is why we can say of a Christian, dear Christian, it is God who works in you now with the will and the work for His good pleasure. He has changed the polarity of your heart. The sin that your heart was once attracted to, it now repulses. The things of God it once repulsed is now attracted to it. You're not perfect. Dear Christian, you know that, don't you? I want to tell you that. There's much remaining sin. There's much bad habits to be weeded out. But you have now submitted yourself to God in principle. And over time, that should show itself in submission to God in each and every aspect of your life for His glory, for your good. Abram, in this moment, has no idea where God is going to take him. He's not even told that it's a land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, that would have helped, right? God doesn't even describe the land. God doesn't even say it's a good land. He just says, I'm going to take you somewhere and you need to go. John Calvin says that it's as if God said to Abram, I command thee to go forth with closed eyes and forbid thee to inquire where I am about to lead thee until having renounced thy country, thou shalt have given thyself wholly to me. Calvin says, this is the true proof of our obedience when we are not wise in our own eyes, but commit ourselves entirely to the Lord. If you come to a place where you trust God that much, can you say, God, wherever you ask me to go, whatever you ask me to do, whoever you want me to speak to, I will obey. Do you read your Bible that way? 
Do you open up its pages and receive your orders from your loving God and then trusting that He is good and wise? Do you act on the orders? I have to speed up, I know. I'm going to try and do fast. Number two, Abram's call was a call to self-denial. He was to leave his country, his kindred, even his father's house. Obedience to God often means putting aside those things which compete most with God for our affections. Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Remember the test that will come to Abram when he's called Abraham and he takes his son Isaac and is called to bind him and sacrifice him. Following Christ is a life of self-denial. You must deny the very desires that once governed you. You're called to put to death sexual immorality and hatred, dishonesty, pride, greed, envy, bitterness. You're called to, to hold your tongue when you, you used to would have said that. <laughs> right? You're called to forgive when you once would have sought revenge. You're called to practice moderation when you once would have indulged. And Christ does not place these commands on you to torment you. He places these commands on you because He loves you. But on top of that kind of self-denial is the sacrifice of good things for the cause of the greater thing. It was good for Abram to love his father and his father's house and his extended family. Yet God calls Abram to give them up for the sake of his call. He must leave his family behind in a day without telephones, in a day without email, in a day without automobiles. He must allow those relationships to become weaker by distance. We prayed for Southeastern earlier. Right now there are students preparing to get on a plane with their families and to go to other parts of the earth. How do you think it feels for their parents and grandparents to watch them fly away knowing they won't see them maybe for years on end? That for some of them, they won't be able to communicate with them. And yet they sacrifice for the cause of Christ. Over the last several weeks, we've learned about a number of different countries during our missions moment. We've talked about how Difficult it can be for Muslims who convert to Christ. So often for a Muslim to convert to Christ is to be disowned by your family. It's to lose your job and your means of supporting your family. In many of those countries, to convert from Islam to Christianity is to be targeted by others for violence. The possibility of even losing your life. This is the cost for some who follow Jesus in our world. When we first come to Christ, we are not told up front what the cost will be. We are only told we must be willing and ready to take up our cross and follow Jesus wherever He leads us. We are only told, I'm sorry, many of you in this room can testify that you could have never imagined 20 or 30 years ago the kind of life Jesus would lead you to be having today. Following Christ has called you to make some decisions you never thought you would make. 
Following Christ has caused you to give up some habits and practices you never thought you would get rid of. Following Christ has caused you to adopt new habits and practices you thought would never characterize you. But every sacrifice we are called to make as we follow Christ is ultimately for our good and cannot compare with the sacrifice Christ has made for us. Reminds me of the famous line by Jim Elliot, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. All right, real quickly. God has given his word with commands for our lives. These commands require sacrifice. They require self-denial. But this yoke is easy and this burden is light when we trust in the one who gives us those commands and believe he's going to give us the grace to obey them. Here is the third and primary aspect of Abram's call. It was a call to faith. God holds forth promises to Abram and calls Abram to trust him. Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place where he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. What in the world could have prompted Abram to leave his father's house and to begin traveling without even knowing where he was going or where he would end up? It was only his faith in the word of God spoken to him. What will determine how you respond to God's commands? Whether or not you trust Him. When the temptation comes for us to overeat, I'm picking on myself, and we know God has commanded us to enjoy our food and drink, but not to be gluttonous, what will determine whether we take that third trip to the buffet or not? It will be whether or not we trust at that moment that God's way will lead us to greater joy than that third plate of food. When the temptation to lust or greed or hatred or a sharp word comes... What matters in that moment is whether or not we trust that obedience to God's commands will lead us to greater joy and blessing than if we gave in to the temptation. God must be trustworthy in our eyes or we will sin. If God calls you to leave your hometown and become a missionary in Uzbekistan, will you be willing to go? Because He's won your trust. If God appears to be leading you to adopt an orphan into your family or to give your weeknights to share the gospel with inmates in a prison or to sell your house for a smaller one and to give the money to help the spread of the gospel, what what would you do if if God were to impress on you that that's where He was leading you? Has He won your trust so that you would say, Here I am, Lord. The Bible is full of commands for us to live radically and sacrificially for God's glory, but it is a lack of faith that keeps us from obeying Him as we should. If we only had faith the size of a mustard seed, we could what? Yes. I I know it's lunchtime, folks. Do you understand how precious these moments are? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if you give yourself to a holy life, a life of love, a life of pointing others to Christ, a life of building up His church, He will take care of you and ultimately give you greater peace and joy than you would have had otherwise?
Let me close with this. Because trials will come in the life of faith. I recently learned of James Fraser, a pastor in Scotland in the 1700s. James Fraser cared for a small congregation there in Scotland, along with his fellow elders. and He was known for his passionate calls for people to believe on Christ. His wife was a cold, heartless, prideful, unfeeling woman. That's how she's described. Who seemed to hate the man who was her husband. She refused to feed him. His own congregation would leave food for him at a place outside of his home so that he could have sustenance and not starve. She refused to allow a fire or even candles to burn in his study on cold winter evenings. And so he would walk back and forth in his study to stay warm with his hands out in front of him in the darkness as he mentally prepared his sermons. We're told that he actually bore holes in the plaster on each end of the room where his hands would hit the wall and then he'd turn and pace the other way. The biographer said that his wife had a poisonous tongue and she would use it both in private and in public to berate him. He was once at a dinner with other pastors, all of whom knew quite well of his difficult marriage. And one pastor who was more liberal in his theology and didn't like Fraser and his conservative theology, he he suggested that all the pastors join together in proposing a toast to the health of their wives. And then he looked at James Fraser with a sneering, gleeful look and said, you'll want to join in on this one, won't you? So I will and so I ought, said James Fraser. For my wife has been a better wife to me than any one of yours has been to you. How so, they asked. Fraser replied, because she has sent me seven times a day to my knees and I otherwise would not have gone. When some of the elders of the church heard that James Fraser had died, they came with grieving hearts to his house. And to their horror, they found his wife outside feeding the chickens, showing no signs of grieving, no signs of mourning, no signs of loss. One of them approached her and asked, So Mr. Fraser has gone to his rest? Oh yes, the poor man died this morning, she said, as she continued feeding her chickens. If you want to see the body, you may go in. And she turned around and chick, 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 kept feeding the chickens. This man lived with this cruel wife for decades. He never divorced her, as many would in our day. He never ceased to pray for her, and he was even able to thank God for her. Why? Because of his faith in God and what God had taught him in his word. He knew his wife was a gift for his sanctification, teaching him patience, bringing him humility, causing him to trust God all the more. He didn't know when he first trusted God and he first got married that this is what laid ahead for him. But he received what God had for him with faith. No surprise, he wrote a book that is still being used today as a standard. It was called a treatise on sanctification. In it, he argues that even those who have been converted to Christ need to hear the gospel of God's grace again and again and again to feed their faith so that they will hold on to Christ, endure trials, and receive the promise that is to come. 
Friends, I don't know what trials are ahead for you, but what matters is this. Has God won your trust? Do you really believe in a place called heaven? Do you really believe, do you really, really believe that you will one day dwell in a new heavens and a new earth with God's people forever? Do you really believe what the Bible says about you, that your inheritance is already yours? It's already been given to you by faith. It was purchased by the blood of Christ. You're just waiting to receive the fullness of it. Oh, if we believed those things, we would be such a different people. Do you believe that you will be blessed beyond your imagination? Because your God loves to bless his children. All that God requires of us is that we trust him and show our faith by striving to obey him. Jesus Christ will bring us safely to God and to the fullness of his promises, but we must follow him in faith. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ today? Your actions will tell. And if you are, and if you persevere in faith, glorious blessings await you. Do you believe it? Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you are not